0: From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio.
1: When can you use lethal force in self-defense? Is self-defense just about guns? Can you actually take a life? Are you sure? Is 45 caliber more effective than 9mm, or does that even matter anymore? What's the one thing people almost never consider when they're thinking about a gunfight? These are just some of the questions we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by David Kennick, firearms instructor extraordinaire and author of the popular book, Armed Response. Hi, David. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me here, Dean. Well, I'm really glad to have you on. You know, David, I first became aware of you when I bought your book, uh, Armed Response. And I if I'm if I remember correctly, this came out in two thousand and five. And I was buying a lot of books at the time because I was really just getting started. I was shooting bullseye at the time, starting to get into self-defense stuff, and I kept buying books, you know, looking for additional information on, on self defense and just gun handling and all of that. And your book really stood out just because it was so straightforward. And presented the information in, in just such an organized way. And I've always been a fan. I've, I've kept it on my shelf ever since. And I highly recommend it. Our armed response. I appreciate that. uh, Thanks. So, uh,
0: what, what prompted you to, to write that book? Well, I was looking for a book that I wanted to read as a shooter. And there really wasn't anything out there, uh, that I liked. Uh, and I try and write it from a shooter's perspective. Uh, what do I, did I want to learn when I first started shooting? What did I want to know as I became more uh, involved in, in carry uh, and you know, more educated? Uh, so it was all about what I thought the reader wanted to know. I remember when I first started out, I remember the first gun
1: safety class that I ever had, you know, just a basic pistol class. And I remember the instructor because apparently I, when I was shooting my Barney bullets, uh you know they they give you like one bullet and you, you put it in a in a gun and you shoot it and <laughs> I, apparently i wasn't using up a lot of the paper and uh one of the instructors came to me afterward and said you know you you really should consider shooting bullseye i think you would enjoy that so i was looking for information and this was sort of pre world wide web you know times when it wasn't really easy to find information and it was so difficult to find any information about shooting or oh, yeah. or competition or anything like that. And, you know, your book was one of uh, just a handful that really stood out. So I, I really appreciated that. And then, of course, years later, I got involved in Buckeye Firearms Association and you uh, came out and did a class for us, a seminar, which uh, I think went really well. And, um, you know, your style is is really straightforward and doesn't get into a lot of the tactical Kind of stuff that too many instructors do, and and you know really kind of turns off. I think the average person who just wants to be better at what they're doing.
0: Yeah, well, there's two ways to make a presentation. What is what the presenter wants to say, and the other is what the uh, the audience wants to hear. And uh, I wrote the book about what the audience wants to read, and I created the class about what the audience wants to hear. So it's not about me; it's about what what they need. Well, that that certainly comports with my experience. Uh, my background is marketing,
1: and it, it's all about. You know, what, what message do you, do you need to deliver? Because what you say is not the same as what people hear, uh, which is another way absolutely. of saying it. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So, uh, David, where did you get your start
0: with guns and shooting? I mean, did you grow up in a firearms family? No, um, not at all. Uh, my, my parents were from New York City, so they had no interest in guns. And I had an interest in guns for as long as I could remember. Uh, Actually, my dad got me a pellet gun from a family friend when I was a little kid and uh, probably around age 10 or so. And I remember always asking family friends to to let me shoot, uh, you know any friends i could find that had guns let me shoot when i could uh, i bought my first gun uh as soon as i could when i was 18 it was a ruger speed six i don't know if uh anyone is out there even so know what that gun is anymore it's an oldie uh back in, it was a 357 uh, so i really didn't get into carrying defense and shooting uh until after college and i got my start reading masad Ayoub's book uh, in the gravest extreme and a few years after that i had an opportunity to uh, take his classes and that really started a lifelong pursuit of uh, learning uh about and practicing personal defense where did you shoot you said you grew up in new york city no no my parents or, were from new york oh, from, um, from i grew up in new hampshire oh, okay yeah so uh, you know new york city people uh you know especially back then guns were uh n- not not the norm by any stretch what led you to become an instructor uh just, just your interest in firearms in general or, or how did you get to Well, that point? It, it all became from the response of my book. Uh, I had such a great response uh from readers and uh retailers that were, you know, uh you know, had great sales on it. So I really took that and developed a two-day class about that book, uh basically all the topics in that book. And uh that became very popular. So I created uh other classes, defensive handgun, defensive uh, rifle, shotgun, home defense. So really, you know, all, all based around the book. And I should mention the videos as well. I mean, I've got
1: a whole series of the videos that um, you and your uh, your partner uh, put out. What's his name? Uh, Ralph? Ralph Moroz? Ralph
0: Morose, yes. Moroz, yes. okay. Um,
1: yep. and, and those are, uh, I've always been a fan of those too because again, they, they seem to take the same approach that the book does. There's no nonsense. You just really get right down to it. And the videos have a lot on them. i bought videos where you buy it thinking you're going to learn a lot and they will be, you know, 30 or 40 minutes and what, that's it. Uh, you really load those videos up with, with an awful lot of content. How
0: popular were the videos? very much so our goal in developing them is that we wanted the viewer not to have any questions unanswered by the time they watched we tried to, to cover the subject as as deeply as we could uh, you know some of the videos are an hour and a half uh, I think uh, handguns 101 is you know over three hours so we jam-packed those just as much as possible so they're a phenomenal source uh, I recommend them if you if you can't take classes That's a a great way to get education and even as addendum to classes that you are taking.
1: Near the beginning of your book, Armed Response, you say that before someone picks up a gun, they should answer a question. And the the question you pose is, can you take a life? How important is that question if you're going to carry or use a gun for self-defense?
0: It's absolutely vital. Uh, It's very important because if it's not in your mindset, the gun can cause you more harm than good. Uh, If you pull your gun and then you hesitate because you don't want to shoot, you've really just given the attacker your gun. So I've got friends that uh, tell me, even if attacked, they won't uh, shoot someone. And while personally, I can't fathom that attitude for myself, it's the reality. And I tell them it's a good decision not to get to a, gu- uh, not to get a gun. Uh, because if you, like I said, if you get that gun in play and you hesitate the last second, say, can I really do this? You've just given the bad guy your gun. And that could be a real problem. Yeah. Uh, you know, I talked to a woman
1: once, a very nice lady, and, and we were discussing this. I don't remember how it came up. And I posed the question to her because she seemed to be very you know, anti-gun, anti-self-defense. And I asked her, well, what if someone broke into your home, you know, grabbed one of your children? I think she had a young boy and a young girl. And I said, what if this guy grabbed one of your kids, put a knife to their throat, and and you knew that one of your children was about to die right in front of you. If you had a gun, wouldn't you use that gun? She became very upset, almost broke down into tears. And she said, "I, I don't have a right to take anyone's life. And I I was just, I was just stunned. I I couldn't, I couldn't fathom that. How could you not defend your own child? I I ended the conversation. That that was probably the only time I have ever ended a conversation like that because I didn't know what to say that was not going to be incredibly insulting. Um, I, I I can't. Even now, I don't know what. No, what exactly she said? She, she can't do what? She just, cause she didn't believe that it was anyone's right to take a life, regardless. But by not defending her children,
0: she just gave the perp the get, right to kill her kids. Right in that I, scenario, I, I
1: get that. And, you know, and I've thought this through. Um, you know, my wife and I have talked about this, and I've said, you know, look, I I don't want to hurt anybody. I'm I'm a pretty easy guy to get along with. And I said, you know, if somebody comes in this house, you know, they're going out in a rubber bag. I said that that is just a decision that I have made in advance, because you don't know what someone's going to do if they if they come into your home or you know, there's certain situations where. You just you need you you need to think this through in advance and I think a lot of people don't um I'm I, I wish I could talk to that woman again but I, I I don't understand that kind of thinking whether it's a philosophical or religious thing or whatever it was I was just so stunned I I really just had to walk away uh, you know I, I think yeah. most people even most anti-gun people I think in the end would would use whatever means possible to defend their family but th- according to this woman, um, she
0: would not, it, you know, I would have the same attitude. I can't fathom that as well. I mean, it's, I've had some people say to me, well, they wouldn't defend themselves, but they would defend their children. I've never come across anyone who says they wouldn't even def- defend their children, but you know, the, the, you know, they say that life takes all kinds. Yeah.
1: And, and, you know, I've had a conversation with people about defending others. I'm not sure that I feel, uh, the, the need to, you know, if I see someone who's not a friend, not a family, someone I don't know, I don't know that I'm necessarily obligated to defend someone else, because that poses a lot of really difficult questions. You know, what what's actually going on? Do I know who the good guy and the bad guy is? Uh, you know, I could be Absolutely. making the situation worse. But, if, you know, if it's my wife, it's my family, my friends, those close to me, I, I sort of ascribe to an idea that I just call the, the circles of loyalty. You know, there, in my mind, there I have circles of loyalty. You know, if it's my family, that's in the inner circle. You know, my friends are kind of in a circle beyond that. And then, you know, the, the, the less I know or am involved with someone, you know, they're kind of further out in those circles. And I think you just, you need to know where people are, uh, you know, in those circles of loyalty and what your response is going to be.
0: You need to think it through. Defending a third party is an entirely different question and it's not one easily answered. There are people that say, well, I'm not going to risk my life for somebody else. And the others say, well, how could you not save someone else? You have to look at it as a risk situation. Whenever I make a decision, whether it's buying a stock, buying a cookie or defending someone's life, I look at this, I balance the scenario. What could happen against what uh, I would be preventing in a gunfight? You could die. So the question is, are you willing to die to prevent whatever you see happening in front of you? So am I willing to make my children fatherless to protect the $20 robbery? Right.
1: And I've had that, that same thought where, because I know some people who will say, you know, well, if they see a crime going down, you know, they're immediately going to engage. And, I, and, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, wait a minute, if I'm in a restaurant by myself, that's one situation. If I'm in that same restaurant with my wife, my goal is. The, the only thing at that moment is to get my wife out of that restaurant. Again, that's that circles of loyalty. I, I don't have loyalty to the other people in the restaurant, but I do to my wife. That is my number one. So, you know, it's a different situation depending on who's with me,
0: where I am. You know, you, you got to think through all the different scenarios, I think. Yeah, here's the thing. People, when they think about uh, stopping robbery, when they think about stopping rape, they never think about themselves being killed. They only think about stopping it. They don't think about the bad side. Uh, I've been a gun writer for, I don't know, 10, 12 years or so. And one of my most popular articles was called Heroic Consequences. And it is basically all about the concept of the consequences of being in a gunfight. And are you willing to put to risk your life, your health, your wealth, For a third party that you don't know. And some people will say absolutely. Some people will say never. That's like I said, you know, that's a very difficult question to answer. But what you have to do is you have to look at the worst case scenario uh, outcome. And is it worth that to you? And that's a decision that everyone has to make for themselves. And very often they'll make it on the fly. They may say, well, geez, I'll never help anyone. Uh, I'm not going to risk my life. And then something happens right in front of them and they pull out their gun and do something. And, uh, you know, just the opposite. They say, well, I would help. But then now they hide in the bushes because they're, you know, they're afraid of getting shot. So just because you make up that mind ahead of time doesn't mean that's actually what's going to happen when the circumstances arises. But it's something that is a very, very complicated uh, thought process that you have to go through to determine, you know, what the right answer is for you.
1: Yeah, and, that, and that's worth a lot of thought. Uh, you know, David, every every self-defense class, and it's usually uh, concealed handgun classes, you know, those sort of things, they'll talk about lethal force in the law. But I find that people are always still a little confused about that topic. Do you have an easy way
0: to explain when it's legal to use lethal force? It's not a simple subject to be boiled down in one sentence. But if I was forced to do it, it says, don't shoot anyone unless you absolutely have to. And there's no way to avoid it. That's actually the simplest explanation I've ever heard. <laughs> that's, that's actually pretty good, right? Don't don't shoot someone unless you have to. I, Wow. <laughs> I, think I mean, I'm- if you're going to die unless you shoot, you know, that's that's the this the simplest way. Um the, the concept of Use of force is very very complicated. Uh, there is a whole level of force. Yelling at somebody is considered force. Pushing them, uh, using empty hands is force. You're only the law only allows the use of equal force, in, except in some you know specific s- situations. Uh, so there's a whole concept. When you get into studying the lethal force, and I'll use the line that uh, I remember from Masad's class back going 30 years ago. In this class, you will find times that you. Th- thought that you could shoot, that you legally can't, and times that you thought you can't shoot, that you legally can. So it is a very complicated process um, that you. it is absolutely vital to understand. And also the state law is different. Uh, differ. uh, in Texas, it is legal to uh, defend property. Someone's stealing your truck. It's legal to use legal force to defend your truck. I never recommend that because I'm looking at the worst case scenario result is that I die. I'm not willing to die for my truck, especially considering it's insured. Well, so no, wait a minute. So what what kind of truck is it? I mean, is it it a really (laughs) nice Chevy? (laughs) (laughs) So just because the law allows it doesn't mean it's a good idea. What if the guy uh, shoots back and you die? So while this Texas law allows you to protect property doesn't mean it's a good idea.
1: Well, that kind of begs the question, I mean, is self-defense really all about guns? It seems like in our world, um, the, you know, the gun world, the training world, it seems like a lot of people get fixated on guns, but what about other weapons or what about unarmed fighting skills? What about de-escalation?
0: You know, is, it, is it just guns? Guns are the final solution, so to speak. Number one is avoidance. I've avoided thousands of thousands of gunfights. I've won thousands of thousands of gunfights by avoiding them. Uh, so that's that's number one. De-escalation is certainly a possibility. Empty hand skills are very important because the vast majority of altercations are not lethal alterc- altercations. You know how many uh, push fights or fist fights or whatever never rose to the level of lethal force and you can only use lethal force against lethal force. So the, uh, the chance of you needing empty hand skills, fighting skills are much greater than ever needing your gun. I've been carrying a gun for, Oh, she's 40 years. I haven't pulled it once. I talked to someone
1: in this area and he was saying, you know, one of the interesting things is that most people, and I think he was talking mostly about men saying most people have never actually been in a physical fight They've never been hit by somebody or taken to the ground by somebody, even as a kid. And kind of a a light went off in my head. And I think, you know, that's really interesting. When I was a kid, I was in a bunch of fights. I mean, I I was the the 90-pound guy with glasses and braces, you know, the nerd. And I I just ended up in fights. But he was saying a, a lot of guys have never been hit, have never had a physical altercation, and they don't know how to respond when someone lays hands on them. And absolutely. And and that presents a real challenge. I mean, if your only answer, you know, like they say, if your only tool is a hammer, then you see all your problems as nails. Well, if your only tool is a gun, then shooting is the only response. You know, I'm totally 100% on board with carrying firearms. I carry all the time. Um, I, I have, I would say at least an above average amount of training. But I'm, I'm like you. I think I would try to avoid every situation. And just because someone, you know, whacks me on the chin, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to pull out a
0: gun and shoot them because I can take that. Absolutely. And this, the scenario that you mentioned of people not being in fights is actually what the police departments have been seeing for the last uh, many years is a lot of their recruits have never been in a, a fist fight. Uh, So they've never dealt physically or mentally in that situation. Um, In addition to my guns, I always carry pepper spray. Pepper spray is a very uh, effective, low level of force. And what I mean by low level of force is while it's effective, it doesn't do any permanent damage. Therefore, it's low on the force scale uh i'm not poking out somebody's eyes to blind them i'm just temporarily blinding them for 20 minutes uh does nothing permanent so it's considered a low level but i'm much more likely to need my pepper spray than i'm going to need my handgun but when you need a handgun not much else will do so we've been talking about you know this
1: idea that it's not all about guns but, but let's talk about guns a little bit i'm i'm sometimes asked for advice about you know what kind of gun someone should get and usually it's from someone who I know that they're not going to do a lot of training they're not going to take classes I know they're not going to do you know you know the the drill the reloading drills or the or the um, malfunction drills or any of that and usually what it comes down to I'd say look get a revolver get get a get a five shot small revolver they're easy to load easy to use uh, if you're not going to train it's probably a fail safe you know, way to go. What What do you think about that advice? Well,
0: I, uh, the best way to answer that is I agree in disgrace. <laughs> Yes, for all the reasons you stated, uh, revolvers are very easy to operate. Uh, they're very easy to use. They're not ammo sensitive like semi-auto uh, are, but they do jam, particularly when you have bad ammo. And when the revolver jams with bad ammo, it's really jammed. Um, so, but they are less likely to jam with uh, semi-autos. The problem that all revolvers share is a long, heavy double action trigger. It's the hardest trigger to use, and it's difficult to learn to shoot them accurately. The second problem is often the choice of revolvers. Most people veer towards these little snubbies, like you mentioned. Snubbies themselves are very accurate, but they're also very hard to shoot them accurately. So not only does the long, heavy double action trigger make them hard to shoot, snubbies often have tiny, almost useless sights. That even And even if the sights are good, the short radius makes them really hard to aim. So it, it's kind of a A yes or no kind of answer. They do have some advantages. I mean, personally, I carry a full-size gun as my primary, and I only carry small guns as backup or when the situation doesn't allow me, for whatever reason, to carry a full-size gun. Um, I certainly understand your point uh, that they're certainly simpler to operate, but they're also harder to shoot. Yeah, no, I
1: I get that. Uh, What what I see is with a lot of shooters, because it takes a little while to gain uh, grip strength. And and I see just an awful lot of jams just from limp wristing, you know, a semi-auto, the gun will just move too much and, and it'll jam and they just don't
0: know what to do. Yeah. I mean, I don't recommend a gun to anyone who's not going to learn about it and practice with it. You know, not only do you need to learn about the legal use of guns, you need to learn how to shoot it. Um, so if somebody tells me that, you know, they're just going to buy a gun and stick it in the drawer and they're not going to train, not going to learn, I'm going to tell them not to get a gun. David, what do you carry? You
1: you said you uh, you carry a semi-auto. Can you share what kind and what kind of ammo and all the details? Sure.
0: Right. Uh, for decades I was a 45 guy because let's face it bigger holes are better uh, but that said ammunition has approved in the last decade 20 years or so uh, usually and there's no longer really a big difference between 45 and 9 anymore uh, the stigma 9mm being a feeble round is really pretty gone they're quite effective these days so while I carried a 45 for decades I've uh, switched a few years ago to a 9mm because of the extra capacity due to all the, the gang violence that we've been seeing in the last few years when I saw you guys a few years ago when i did the lecture i had just recently switched over to nine millimeter because of all the uh uh, b- uh protests that were going on which started uh you know in missouri and all that kind of stuff so now i'm carrying a uh, smith and wesson mp m2 nine millimeter with an extended mag uh total capacity is 23 rounds and it's a pretty big gun with a long magazine so you know if you want something like that you really need to dress around it to be able to conceal it and what about extra mags I usually carry at least one extra mag, not so much that I think I'm going to need the ammo, but the weakest link in any semi-automatic system is the magazine. So the greatest chance of failure is the the magazine. Uh, So I carry a spare one, but certainly another 23 rounds will help. Um, If you're in a state uh, that has restrictions on carry, uh, you can only carry 10 rounds. I'd recommend if the most powerful 10 rounds you can get, which would be a 45. So I- uh,
1: Yeah, I I want to talk about a pet peeve of mine because I'm thinking about you know the the gun and the holster and the belt and the whole thing. And I've always thought about all of those as a unit, but uh, I I see guys that they'll spend you know four or five, six hundred dollars or more, sometimes a lot more, getting uh, you know a gun. They they spend all kinds of time researching it, and then they buy a cheap holster and they wear a floppy (laughs) belt. I, I saw a video of a guy online once, and he was reviewing a holster and giving it a really bad review because when he drew his weapon, the, the, his pants hiked way up. And I'm thinking, there's nothing wrong with that holster. You, you don't have a good belt and you don't have it cinched down. And that's why it's moving around too much. What do you think about you know, that idea that if you're going to buy a, a good gun, buy, buy a good holster, buy a good belt, you know, it's,
0: a, it's a system that works together. Oh, absolutely. It's like a car with bad brakes, you know, good seat belts and bad brakes. You know, it, It's the whole system that keeps you safe. And I do see that a lot. I'm, I don't think it's so much about people being cheap as them not knowing how important a good holster is and what makes a good holster. Uh, when I started carrying uh, Kydex, wasn't even around. And, you know, like you, the, back then, the Internet didn't exist either. I guess that just shows how old we are. But uh, back then, you bought a holster from a local gun store. If you could find one that fits your gun or you had to buy an expensive custom holster that you found advertised in a gun magazine. Uh, today, we've got hundreds and hundreds of options. I'm constantly amazed to find all these new holster companies out there. But you need to know what to look for. So you need to get a good holster. So what's a good holster? It has to be custom designed specifically for your gun, not one size fits all. And you see that a lot in the cheap ones. It has to hold the gun securely, but allow an easy draw. So you don't want the gun falling out, but it can't be so tight that you can't draw. It needs to be designed, and this is very important, that you can get a complete combat grip on the gun while it's still in your holster. And I can't tell you how many holsters I see these days that don't allow you to do that. And it also has to be properly fit to the belt so it doesn't slip. The, uh, the opening of the holster also has to remain open when the gun is closed. I'm seeing a lot of problems with that with these hybrid holsters that have some sort of cloth on one side and then half a Kydex holster on the other. They tend to collapse, not as much as the soft leather ones, but enough to make it difficult to uh, to reholster. And the other thing that makes a good uh, holster is the bolt, uh, belt loops must be sized to match the belt. Otherwise, it's... Uh, going to slip and you mentioned belts uh the belt has to be a belt designed for carry it needs to be stiff enough to support the weight of the holster so it doesn't flop around otherwise it gets pretty uncomfortable and again the height of the belt it needs to match the belt loops to keep it uh, from moving around and making it uncomfortable and uh, there's lots of options out there's lots of great holsters but it's an amazing number of poorly designed holsters so bad that i doubt the designers actually ever carried a gun
1: one of the things that, that people almost never think about, and, and I'm thinking of this question because it, it just sounds like you take a really practical approach to everything, is uh, at the aftermath. You know, After a self defense shooting, I think people think, think it through maybe, if they think it through at all, right up to the point where they pull the trigger, and then they don't think about anything that's going to happen after that. What can you expect
0: after you're forced to shoot someone, assuming that you survive? This is also another long topic. There's the emotional uh, after effect, and the big, very complicated one is the legal after effect. Emotionally, some people will sleep like a baby. Others will be distraught knowing that they took another life or injured another person. Uh, In that case, you have to know that you did what was right to defend you and your family. And regardless, it was them that disregarded their own life to put you in danger. Um, And the other thing is the legal aspect, you know, pretty much expect to be arrested uh, and questioned in most states. Uh, Keep in mind that there's only one thing ever said on TV that's actually true everything you say and do can be used against you in a court of law. So when the re- responding police, I advise uh, when they show up, I advise you to tell them that you were attacked and forced to defend yourself, point out any witnesses uh, in case they might disappear, or point out any evidence that might get lost or destroyed, such as brass cases or footprints. Tell the police that you want to press charges and that you'll give them a full statement after you've talked to your attorney and then shut up. <laughs> You'll notice I've made a lot of emphasis there. Not talking is actually difficult for most people because good people want to explain bad behavior. Right. So they, t- they want to explain that away to responding officer. Keep in mind that no matter how friendly they seem, the responding police are not there to be your friend. Now, I don't say that to be anti-police. I'm very pro-police. I say that because it's their job to gather evidence and getting you to say something that you shouldn't is par for the course. So uh, you need to understand that even in the justified shoot, you might be prosecuted. And even if you're found not guilty, you might be sued civilly by the family. Remember, O.J. was found not guilty of the criminal charge, but guilty in the civil suit. And when you're dealing with court, expect to spend a few hundred thousand dollars on both the criminal case and the civil case, which is why having good defense insurance is a great idea. So in addition to the possibility of getting shot or killed, the legal aftermath is another reason that I say that the the more you know about gunfighting, the less you want to be in one. So, you know, keep in mind what could happen in this gunfight. You could get shot. You could get prosecuted. You could get sued. You could go to get jail. You could get shot, prosecuted, and go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> you could spend several hundred thousand dollars defending yourself, right or wrong. And even if you do everything right, you could still get killed. Yeah, I so mean, that's, that's, that's what I—that's well, what I—what I mean. But I say you have to need to think about the consequences of pulling that gun out. You know, do you want to def- go through all of this to defend a third party that you don't know that might only lose twenty dollars in a robbery?
1: So David, um, all of that is great advice, but I'm wondering if you could give everybody just one thing to improve, to improve their odds of surviving
0: a violent threat, what would that one thing be? I don't know who said this is probably one of the most uh, famous sayings is don't do stupid things with stupid people in stupid places at stupid times. So just, just don't go to that bar. Uh, exactly don't, don't. avoid altercations you know when it comes to road rage apologize even if you're in the right the other guy's wrong keep uh, you know that de-escalation don't get into fights you know a simple yelling fight a simple um road rage could turn lethal i don't know how many people remember this but not too uh, many years ago uh there was the, uh, a fist fight at a hockey game and they, they dubbed this guy hockey dad and a fist fight turned lethal I don't remember exactly how, but literally the guy died from a fist fight. So anything could dramatically alter your life or end it. So really avoid everything that you can be aware of your situation. I realize this is more than one thing, but be aware of your situation and surroundings at all times. Take training. The thing that I like to say about training is amateurs train until they get it right. Professionals train until they can't get it wrong. So don't be stupid that's <laughs> I guess, okay you said it than i did <laughs> well
1: i've also heard uh, stupid hurts which you know oh. applies throughout life i guess um yeah but yeah that that's that's great advice david well i'm i'm really happy that you could uh, make an appearance on the podcast this is all great advice um I've, I've just always really enjoyed the way that you give advice I think you're real real straightforward uh everything's really easy to understand I do highly recommend the book armed response and I recommend the videos as well. What's your website?
0: Why don't you plug that? It is armedresponse training.com. The book is available and we've got about 16 uh, videos uh, all about uh, shooting and defense. Yeah. And I can personally recommend those. I've, well, I, I can't say I watched all of them,
1: but I've watched uh, most of them and they're all very good. Very good videos.
0: I, I appreciate Thanks for the kind words.
1: So, David, again, thanks for being on the podcast and hope to have you back again sometime.
0: Look forward to it. Thanks for having me. Take care, Dean.
1: That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at buckeyefirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to joinbfa.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's joinpfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.